Welcome back to LifeSide Beat. I'm your host, Kevin Wynn. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with our guest, Jeff Meyerson. Jeff is CEO and co-founder of Locust Walk. He brings a track record of success in investment banking, venture capital, and licensing, where he's closed over 60 transactions of all varieties. Prior to Locust Walk, Jeff worked in business development at a venture-backed biotech company, in venture capital at SR1, in business development at Metamune, and investment banking in UBS's Global Healthcare Investment Banking Group. Beyond Locust Walk, Jeff founded and is president of an exclusive relationship-building nonprofit organization called BioBreak. He was named by Wharton Magazine and the Philadelphia Business Journal to their 40 under 40 list in 2017 and 2010, respectively. Jeff holds an MBA in healthcare management from the Wharton School, a master's in biotechnology from the University of Pennsylvania, and a BS in economics from Duke University. I'm thrilled to invite you into our conversation. So please join me and Jeff on LifeSide Beat. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to LifeSide Beat. Pleasure to have you on today. Hi, Kevin. Nice to see you. Thanks for yeah, having me. Absolutely. Looking forward to discussing a lot of items here today. But to get started, where did you grow up? I grew up retired in Boca Raton, Florida. I sometimes tell people I live life in reverse. I started retired. I gradually moved my way north through North Carolina, then to the Northeast. That That's me in a nutshell. And and what did your family do down in Florida? Uh, son of a doctor. So basically learned from uh, a young age about the medical field. Always wanted to be in life science. I actually always wanted to be on Wall Street. Uh, I was one of those, those kids. I did an internship in high school at a, at a brokerage firm. I thought that was the coolest thing. Uh, and even when I was in school, that was always what I wanted to do. And to some extent, that's what I'm doing now. Currently, you're at Locust Walk. But prior to starting the firm, uh, you held various roles throughout the life science industry. For example, Metamune, SR1 and Zelos Therapeutics from 04 to 07. So those were kind of the formative early years of your career. What, what are the takeaways you have from each of those experiences? Yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll tell a little bit about career progression. Uh, I started out right out of undergrad in investment bank and healthcare banking, and that was a great foundation for me to learn the business. You know, got your, your butt kicked, but uh, it was a great two years. Uh, and from there, I did a master's of biotech at Penn, because I realized that if I wanted to go into venture capital, which at the time was my my goal, that I needed to have a science background, that I was an econ major undergrad. So paid that price and, and did a year of uh, a biotech master's degree. And while I was there, I worked at Metamune, which is was a large biotech company. It ended up getting bought in 2007 by AstraZeneca, uh, but had a great experience working in their BD group and learned about what a licensing deal was, because they don't really teach you that in banker school. And then got into Wharton. Uh, in the healthcare management program, and basically worked my entire time when I was in grad school, those three years. So I worked at SR1 the summer before starting school, and that was actually a, a fun experience where I got, I think, what might have been the only uncontested venture capital internship. I just wrote to one of the Wharton alums and asked if there was any need for an intern before, I guess, that summer. I did that at the end of April when all the other MBA interns had their jobs. And so I was, I think, the only one even vying for that. So got an uncontested internship in, in venture capital, did that my entire time in, in business school and did eight different venture deals, got a real great exposure to how an investor thinks. And then from there, had a 
offer at SR1 and an offer to join one of SR1's portfolio companies at the time, Zelos Therapeutics. And I zigged when everyone else zagged and decided to go to a small venture back startup that no one had ever heard of uh, instead of going to Big Pharma or going to uh, investor uh, like SR1. And was there for 18 months. Learned a ton. Uh, it was a single product company that basically ran a phase two trial that, uh, while successful, did not differentiate from the marketed analog. And what was ultimately an unsuccessful endeavor gave me a great education. So that's my experience before starting Locust Walk and ultimately had been on all sides of the deal table, the investment banking side, the investing side, big company biotech and small company biotech. That's the background. I mean, just so what did I learn? <laughs> this is tough for people in small companies, but coin flips are hard. So you have to think about if you're going to flip the coin and it comes up tails and you need it ahead, what does that mean? And how do you mitigate that? Are there other either deals you can do or is a platform something that can try to improve the odds of success? Because an investor has multiple companies that they could manage between and a big pharma company has lots of different pipeline assets and they can kill any one of them. But if you're at a small company, you might only have one product and that means life or death if that product doesn't succeed. So I, I learned about risk diversification. That's partly what led me to, to Locust Walk. But uh, I just think that when making career decisions, uh, you have to take all these different lessons into effect. And, and this lastly, out of business school, for those who are students listening to this, going where everyone else isn't, I found always to be a very successful, a successful option. I, I think going to a small biotech company, I learned more in 15 months than most people learned in big pharma over a much longer period of time, going to board meetings, management team meetings, being involved in, in so many different aspects of the business. So at that age, I really invested in my career over investing and maximizing my compensation. I think that served quite well for where I am now. And this was in the, the mid 2000s. Certainly the biotech industry looks a lot different now over 15 years later. Can you share more about what specifically you were working on during those years? And, and what was the biotech industry like? It was not nearly as mature as it is now. And I think there's been a lot of positive developments that have made this a more sustainable, permanent business. But back then, there was, whenever you wanted to go public, there was a range that you could go public for. It was hard to break out of that range. Uh, there was more of a, a formula as to how much money you could raise. It was a lot less capital, a lot fewer dedicated funds. The technology was not nearly as advanced. That was the time that antibodies were just hitting their heyday. They were mostly starting to get approved in the late 90s, and that was really on its way up. Gene therapy was was pretty scattered. Uh, there was uh, a big issue early that decade that, that really put a chill on the gene therapy space. So all the things that we're seeing now uh, really were not factors back then. The, the Human Genome Project just got finished, but there really wasn't much from a genetics basis for, for drug discovery and development. It was an interesting time. It was a time of growth. I felt when I was young in the industry that there were people telling me about the 80s and, and 90s uh, as those were, those were the good old days. But now I guess I'm the guy talking about the early 2000s as being the good old days. Uh, so there's there's been a lot of growth and evolution and, and candidly, between that point and where we are now was a major recession, 2008, 2009, that I think shaped, for those who lived through that, shaped a lot of their perspective on the industry is not always being up and to the right. Understood. Thanks for that perspective. 
moving to the present, you're currently the CEO and co-founder of Locust Walk. Tell us more about Locust Walk, specifically the founding story. Locust Walk, just in a nutshell, for those of you who didn't go to school at Penn, is the street in the middle of the campus, the University of Pennsylvania, kind of the quad, if you will. Uh, and my co-founder, Jay Moore, and I both uh, did MBAs at at Wharton and decided to, I guess, do a hat tip to the alma mater without being too obnoxious about it. So that's actually where the name comes from. But we identified, he was my boss at a business school, and we identified a need working at a small biotech company that can you do more with the same team or can you help more than one company at the same time? Because we were working in a single asset company and sometimes we were working hard. Other times it was just, you know, kind of twiddling our thumbs, if you will. And we didn't think that was the most efficient and nor would the best people be satisfied with that type of a, a job description. So September 15th, the day that Lehman Brothers went out of business was the day that the two of us said, you know what? We're going to start a company doing exactly what we're doing at Zelos, but trying to do it for many companies. And that was the original premise. And we knew the world didn't need yet another investment bank because, candidly, there are banks going out of business. And so we wanted to do a little bit different of a business model where we looked like a bank, but we also looked like a consulting firm. And we used really our operating experience to our advantage. That was the beginning. It took us a little while to actually get our act together. Technically, our first day in business was December 1st, 2008. I remember vividly at JP Morgan in 2009, where the sky was officially falling. It was pretty gloom and doom. And uh, we were the only two people all excited, going to take over the world, come in guns a blazing. And it, it didn't really match the mood of the time. We didn't really know any better. And if I would have known how hard it would have been, maybe, you know, entrepreneur, entrepreneurs say they don't actually, maybe they wouldn't have done the, you know, started the company. Um, but it was it was a lot of fun. I will say that from a risk-reward perspective, people thought we were a little nuts. Maybe that's true. But what was the opportunity cost? The company we were at had a single product. We had already run a process. The company did ultimately end up folding several years later. Um, but we figured, you know, we'd have some fun, hopefully build a business. And if not, we can always just get new jobs. So just reframing what is risk really. And I just had our first kid and this was Locust Walk was kind of our second child. And, you know, what was what was really the risk? I was 28 at the time uh, when starting Locust Walk. I would say, again, from a comp perspective, I made not that this matters, but I made more money as a first year investment banking analyst right out of undergrad than I did 18 months at a warden, which is pretty humbling, to be honest. You realize that it doesn't matter where you went to school. It matters how competent you are, how how good you are, what you what you charge, et cetera, your track record, of which we had none. Um, and I guess the last thing, and I'll shut up on this, is the dirty little secret about what we were selling. I don't usually disclose this, but I guess now it's for all to hear, is we had actually never done a true licensing deal for a biotech company in our history. I was a banker. Jay was uh, an operator. But that was really what we were selling was licensing and business development support. So we were selling something technically we were unqualified to sell. And we had some great people that believed in us early days, which I'll never forget and always be appreciative. But that's kind of the, I guess, fake it till you make it and hope for the best. And that's how we got off the ground. Certainly a bold strategy to launch a new firm on the heels of, of the global financial crisis. So, so I tip my hat to you. 
It sounds like the initial focus for Locust Block was, like you mentioned, business development and licensing. Can you explain what is business development and licensing? So business development is basically different for what usually you think about it, where it's just doing partnerships for uh, a company to bring in revenue. This is when a company, usually a small biotech company, wants to find what's called non-dilutive sources of capital, money that could help to fund one or more different programs that are either in development or might be created for that partner. And business development enables that transfer of value where you transfer rights for usually commercialization to that product, usually including development of that product in exchange for an upfront payment, some milestones, some royalties. It might involve some co-marketing, some co-development. There's lots of different flavors and structures. That's actually what makes it a lot of fun is there's no rules. There's no securities regulations that this must be registered here, that must be there. Because it's a transaction involving intellectual property and it's a customized contract, you can do almost anything you want from exchanging value and exchanging rights. Obviously, there's some limitations, but that's really what's helped to build the biotech ecosystem is there's a lot more business development deals than there are M&A deals. And it's a, a way for companies to, to get validation, to reduce their burn, uh, and ultimately to, to scale. I'll just say that that was the core of what we were doing, but there was also a few other things like figuring out your business development strategy. We also endeavored to to raise money for companies, but that didn't come for a few years later. Got it. Thanks for the clarification there. Today, Locust Walk operates across a wide range of areas, whether it's capital markets and BD advisory to the recent efforts in new co-creation as well. How did this evolution come about? At the founding, we always wanted to be a different type of bank where we could do business development deals, raise capital, and figure out a company's strategy. And that was the original vision as an advisor. But always we wanted to be what's called a merchant bank, where we could start companies, advise companies, and, and even invest into companies. So that's, that's where we wanted to be 14 years ago. I just think that we've been able to scale to a certain extent to really realize uh, some of that vision. So ultimately, the capital markets is different from the way a bank operates, that we're focused on private placements for private companies, interacting with folks who will actually write a check into an illiquid security as opposed to an IPO or follow-on. Business development is different than M&A. M&A is just when you buy and sell a company. And as we've already discussed, business development is more licensing focused. Uh, we do that on the sell side, which means helping the small company to find a bigger partner, but also on the buy side to identify assets or companies to in-license or acquire. We also do that on a regional basis. We have an office in Tokyo, which covers Japan, China, and the rest of Asia, and also have an office in London, uh, in which case we've occasionally uh, worked on Europe regional deals. The strategy piece is uh, complementary, but a little bit different. That's more like a strategy consulting firm where everything we do is related to a transaction. So if there's a platform and you have to figure out which areas do you focus on, which indications do you pursue, what do you invest your equity dollars in versus what do you consider partnering, those types of questions we think we have an advantage versus the traditional consulting firms because we're a deal-focused shop. So then when you take the strategy work, the strategic deal-making, and the fundraising 
You put that all together into one mixing bowl, and then you do that on a global scale with offices around the world. We think that makes us unique compared to the banks and consulting firms out there. So that's the core of business of what we've been scaling the last 14 years. So with the NUCO, we did we had an earlier effort uh, in the early teens, but as a as a proper business, we've we helped to launch a company, Garuda Therapeutics, uh, in the fall of 2021. Uh, and raised $72 million from top-tier investors. Uh, and that was a really interesting experience because we took the exact same things that we've always done, the strategy work, the storytelling, the partnering, the fundraising, and just did it in a different order. Instead of doing it for an existing funded company, we partnered with an academic scientist who was spinning out his own innovation. And what was unique about this is we got more capital than we were planning on fair market terms uh, with top-tier investors. And usually you have to compromise one of those three to get some of the others. We're able to, to get the holy grail there. And so we said, wait a minute, that was kind of interesting. Can we do that again? Can we maybe scale that? And so we've done that two more times with companies where we raised seed rounds. Uh, we haven't yet disclosed, so I, I can't share what those companies are. Needless to say, they are high science, next generation potential breakthroughs. Uh, we're working on our fourth NUCO now that we'll probably do a seed financing for uh, later this year. And the two uh, stealth ones will probably have a Series A later this year as well. That's been particularly rewarding, uh, as I say, to to level the playing field, to get a, a fair deal for, for all involved, the investors, the co-founders, the innovators, et cetera. Um, and so we think that that element of uh, this model is unique, at least in a lot of uh, the, the Boston and San Francisco scenes. And we hope that that spurs more competition to vie for the best opportunities, not less. Kind of like in the tech space where the entrepreneurs are the top of the heap. Uh, we think that's where, where it belongs for biotech. And at some point, we would love to have our own capital to invest into to our clients. Uh, but as of yet, that is not the case. Thank you for sharing that. Actually, Let's spend some more time on that new co-creation piece. From a basic science and technical perspective, how do you even begin to figure out which problems or areas to tackle? It's a good question. And we take a different approach than, than most of the venture creation firms who usually focus on the same set of innovators who are obviously very successful, but we, we, we focus on themes. Uh, the two themes that we've spent the most of our time has been stem cell biology and next generation RNA medicine. So much so that we did a conference on stem cells uh, and we're doing an RNA conference as well, uh, where our focus to get deep in that area is to meet all the relevant high value PIs who are starting companies who have next generation approaches that have the potential to be converted into a company. So we're less focused on just beating down the, the doors of the, the major company creation principal investigators, and more focused on where the innovation is and helping that to, to get to light. We're not focused on the, but for us, this would never have gotten funded because technically we, we want things that are fundable and that are high value, but we also want to find things that, that are in demand, but we can make a real difference, not just on the economics for the PI, but also for their involvement, for their control of the science, as well as the, the plan going forward, where they can have more of an influence. So, you know, those are the two areas. Uh, we we do outreach, we, we network, 
We're fairly aggressive with how we can get to folks. We're we're shameless. I, I tell people that I am a professional rejection artist. If I don't get rejected enough, I'm not trying hard enough. So that's the same with our, our core business, the same with the deals we work on, and it's the same with trying to get in front of the right uh, new cos. And as far as a go, no go decision is concerned, what experiments or validation do you and the team look for before proceeding with launching a company? Like, how do you know when it's ready? So good question. I, I have a kind of a couple part answer to this. One, uh, we have a formula that we've started to put together and I'll disclose it to everyone. We even teach it. We built a new co-MBA course based upon the various learnings that we've done from the, the three soon to be four NUCOs we've put together. We look for something that has chemical matter already put together as in some type of a molecule that has been tested in some type of animal therapeutic model. So there's at least some proof that not only have you created a molecule, but it, it does something biologically to an animal uh, as opposed to just in a test tube or as opposed to just in silico in a computer. Uh, and when you have that level of validation um, and potentially a pathway to get to an IND, to get to the clinic, we believe that could lend itself to a relatively small seed round. We're trying to go for $5 million or less. We try to do them as a safe, which is basically a convertible note at a discount to the Series A price. That discount will be commensurate to the risk that the seed investors are taking on. If it's just a simple experiment, maybe it wouldn't be as high. If it's a much riskier experiment or it's much earlier, maybe it's a bigger discount rate. And then actually get that data. And then with your Series A funds, be no more than two years from the clinic. So we would need to be close to uh, a lead, if not a DC development candidate out of the seed if not early on in the A, and at least get to the clinic or into the clinic with a Series A. Not every technology is amenable to that. We know that. That's why we're not the right fit for everyone. But this is our way that we've figured out to try to maximize value for a founder and to create value uh, where it might not have been created. If someone took something out of academia earlier and put more capital to work, there's much less chance to create early value for a founder. So that's the formula. That's the strategy. The last thing I'll say is you got to run the killer experiment early. To your point, fill or kill. I learned that lesson the hard way at Zelos, where no one ever ran the head-to-head -head experiment against uh, the standard of care. And had that been done earlier, maybe it would have had a better chance to get approved, or maybe it would have been killed sooner. Doing the killer experiment preclinically or early in the clinic is absolutely essential to building value and basically taking off the, the biggest risks one at a time. Thanks for sharing that. Maybe I'll have to look into that class myself. So to wrap up the Locust Walk specific discussion, you know, you've mentioned a number of pillars and, and areas where firm operates. Do you have a common thread that ties all of these areas together? So I'll start by saying that we operate in all therapeutic areas, all stages of development, all transaction types for our core business. So that's oncology, immunology, rare, uh, neurology, et cetera, and, and beyond. For our core business, we don't have any restrictions. We've only restricted ourselves in areas where we're taking a lot of risk, putting a lot of time and effort into starting a company where we wanted to have more depth of experience to improve our odds of success. That's that's how we think about specializing. As far as themes, the theme is 
next generation leap forward in medicine that, but for this, there might not be either a therapy or it, it's not incremental. I think when you see the 20th CRISPR-Cas9 company, you know that that's been saturated and the world doesn't need a 21st. So when looking at novel biology to start a company, it's not just about is the platform unique? It's is it actually solving a problem that a different technology isn't already solving? Because there might be competing approaches that are completely different, but get to a sa the same or similar outcome. And you have to think about competition more broadly. You know, we're not looking for the next car T company. We're not looking for the next CRISPR-Cas9 company. We're looking at next generation, how to reconstitute the immune system. How do you do off the shelf hematopoietic stem cell transplant? How do you focus on multiple transcription factors in a single product as opposed to uh, one product targeting one transcription factor. Things that are leap forward approaches, those are actually themes of three of our new codes. And that's, I think, where candidly the industry should be focused, but inevitably people focus on where the dollars are going and they'd rather be the, the third or fourth in a space than the first in a new area. Makes sense. Thanks, Jeff. So in our remaining few minutes here, I, I wanted to pivot and address let's call it the elephant in the room, which is the biotech markets today. COVID had a profound effect on the industry, you know, which experienced a huge run, you know, with the uh, introduction of the vaccines and, and how quickly the industry was able to move. But that was followed by an even bigger downturn. So hoping for some optimism from you, but, but what's your perspective on the industry and the markets and, and what's your outlook for 2023? I am optimistic. I used to be a lot more pessimistic uh, last year. And, you know, I, I don't like to be right about being pessimistic, but I think I was pretty accurate. And you could check the files of our quarterly market conditions of where we thought we were going. There's going to be more pain this year, but it will be a selective pain, not broad pain. Companies that have more data or that much more innovative are going to continue to get funding and actually funding will get easier to come by. We've already found a couple IPOs, although in certain cases, there's already clinical data. So there's there's some changing of, of the risk profile and risk appetite. But companies that get positive clinical data are having a positive reaction in the market. They're raising capital at less and less discounts compared to 2022. And so we're going to see a, an increasing bifurcation of the haves versus have-nots I'm not the only person that said that, but I do think that there will be more positivity coming there. I think the private markets are going to slow because the money is now, the generous money is now going towards the publics when there's 200 companies trading below cash. Why invest in a private illiquid company at a positive enterprise value if you can invest in a public one with a negative enterprise value? So I think we're starting to see, and we will see a slowdown of private deals. I think private deals that our clinical stage will be more common than a series B that's preclinical because with M&A moving later and later stage, you can potentially get a buyout rather than an IPO if you fund a clinical program and get clinical proof of concept and not rely on an IPO to make your return, which was the case for the last multiple years. So early, early stage, I think it's going to require more and more innovation in order to get novel Series A's funded. I think Me Too Series A's are going to go away. I think overpriced Series B's are going to be more challenging unless they're already clinical stage. 
there will be more IPOs than last year, but it's only going to be for the highest quality companies. I think that'll skew more towards clinical versus preclinical. And I think the generalist investor will gradually dip their toe back into the waters when the Federal Reserve decides to stop raising interest rates and stabilize them. I do also predict that the rates will be higher for longer than I think the equity markets are anticipating. But as long as that becomes a new normal, uh, I think that we'll hit an equilibrium and eventually get used to it and, uh, and hopefully have more capital uh, coming into the sector. The last thing I'll say is this is a much more mature market than it was when I started in 2002 and, and certainly long before that. Uh, so as deep and as difficult as this downturn is, and there's been a lot of job losses, there's a much broader capital base and a much broader company base to absorb uh, the people and the capital. So I think that on balance, uh, we'll be better off as an industry and people individually will also be better off when the capital is more efficiently allocated. Great. Definitely an optimistic tone going into the year, but cautious optimism at that. Can you share any tips for management teams of emerging biotech companies, maybe what you've seen in some of your clients, uh, for them to effectively weather today's environment? So this is back to the future. When I started Locust Walk, there was really no IPO market. It didn't really get going till 2012, 2013. So people were using business development as a tool for raising capital for their company. In the, call it 2017, 2018, until the end of 2021, nobody wanted to use business development because equity capital was so cheap. And so everyone was trying to raise capital from investors to go public as quickly as they could. And that was the, the new model. Now we're seeing a, a very dramatic shift back to using business development as a tool for reducing burn, uh, getting validation, uh, getting capital into the company, and maybe even an equity investment from the strategic partner. I would probably say that the companies should not be so binary in their thinking to only look at equity before or to only look at strategic deals now. The the markets are bifurcating on the strategic side where licensing deals are happening earlier and earlier and M&A is happening later and later. And so because of that, and because the IPO markets are still mostly shut and the private capital markets are probably going to get tighter while the public gets a little bit, a little bit looser. Um, I think that dual track processes or even multi-track processes whereby you would think about, is there a global partner? Is there a regional partner in Japan or China, if the asset has enough data? Is there a funding opportunity for, from institutional investors? Pursuing those in parallel, we believe, is the right approach for most companies. It's not one size fits all, but I typically would say the more options that management team has, the more likely they are to succeed. And then in that case, you only need one strategic term sheet and one financing term sheet to get the party going. You don't need two financing term sheets or two strategic term sheets. So maintaining optionality because you don't know the right answer. We don't know the right answer until you ask the question of the market would be the advice that I would give to a management team to manage through the storm. Thanks, Jeff. The goal of LifeSide Beat is to really inspire the next generation of business leaders in life science. You've shared a lot of great messages today, but what parting message would you give to an early career aspiring leader looking to build a career in life science? I already gave some of this earlier, but maybe I'll reframe it. The zigging when everyone else is zagging, I think, has served me well. 
to start a company in the fall of 2008, some people thought was crazy. I thought in retrospect now, it was a great time to try something new because the opportunity cost wasn't that high. I would look at orthogonal areas. One of the things that I've also learned that I was fairly myopic earlier in my career, only focusing on the drug side, not understanding the policy side, not understanding the payer side. And I think that's going to have an increasingly larger portion of the, the biotech sector going forward. The convergence of biotech and tech towards the same direction means I'd probably understand technology better. I'd probably think more broadly about what life science means um, and and be open-minded about that and try to get a variety of experiences. I would say, though, also that I knew very early on I wanted to be in biotech. And so all of my career decisions were based around where I could get the most experience and create the most value for whatever company I was working for. And to think how you could help the company, how you could uh, learn as opposed to how you could take and get, I think is uh, is a mindset shift for perhaps the next generation. But I, I found that I learned so much more of being open-minded and trying new things and not doing what everyone else was doing. Think about what you can offer, what service you can do, uh, where you can learn, who you can mentor, who you can receive mentorship from, and and pay it forward. That's I, I never ask for anything in return. When I do calls with people, I, I try to connect folks to the best of my abilities, and I found that served me quite well. And so the the more you can build that that knowledge base early on, and that network and those relationships early on, I think that'll serve serve well for the rest of your career. That is wise advice. Thank you very much, Jeff, for your time. It was a pleasure to chat and, and looking forward to staying connected. Thanks for including me. Appreciate the chat.